Okay, brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, it's great to be back here in Northern California. Uh, we will continue with another episode of the Bible History Project. But before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting and most holy Father, yes. thank you so much for sustaining our life, giving us our strength this day. We look forward to learning from your holy book. And so we beg you as we study your holy words, may you open our minds and our hearts and help us, Father, to fully benefit from your teachings. Please forgive completely all our sins. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for attending and supporting our Bible History Project for tonight. It's kind of nice to have all of you present because we have a lot uh, to, to, to cover and we have a lot of people ask questions too. Is that okay? Yeah, we kind of like to pick on people in the back. So if you're in the back, you're in luck because we're going to call on you uh, for some questions and answers. Now we're going to study uh, about the death and burial of Sarah. And so it has the tone of sadness a little bit, but it's something that we need to really look into because there's certain things we're going to learn concerning the practice of true Christians when it comes to the death and burial of the people that we love. And so when does Sarah die and where does she die? Let's read the book of Genesis 23 verses 1 to 2. When Sarah was 127 years old, she died at Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron. In the land of Canaan, there Abraham mourned and wept for her. So when did Sarah die? When she was 127 years old. So we can say she lived a full life. Where did she die? In the place we now call Hebron. And later on, we're going to talk a little bit about Hebron and its significance when it comes to our faith. So where is Hebron exactly? Next slide. It's somewhere near Jerusalem along the Judean hills, and so that is where Sarah died. Now, when Sarah dies, she leaves a legacy for other women to follow, the women of God's people. If I were to ask you, what do you suppose Sarah's legacy might be? What do you think it is? What was it that she passed on to succeeding generations? What would it be? Anyone here? Want to volunteer? Raise your hand. What do you think her legacy was? So we studied Sarah. We kind of saw her personality. She was kind of strong-willed. However, if we were to ask you, what do you think the Bible teaches as far as legacy is concerned would be appropriate to link or associate with Sarah? Anyone here? No? Beauty. I love it. Who said that? Beauty, right? She was incredibly beautiful. But what kind of beauty? Did she exude? Let's read the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, 3 down to 6. We know physically she was beautiful. She was a knockout, as they say. But what kind of beauty stood out for Sarah? Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. 
like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And so what was the legacy left behind by Sarah, who became the model of holy women in the past? Bible says she was beautiful inside, right? She was beautiful outside too. Physically, she was anakal. However, what caught God's eye was not her external beauty, but her inner beauty. And what does the Apostle Peter exhort each and every one of us to develop? Not our outward adornment, not our outward beauty, but our inner beauty. Is there anything wrong with trying to make yourself physically attractive? Is there anything wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. If you braid your hair, you put gold, gold earrings on your nose, if you want to be attractive, nothing wrong with that. If you want to put Botox on your face, right? Nothing really wrong with that. However, that should not be our focus. That should not be our emphasis. Why? Because that kind of beauty is fading. The kind of beauty God wants us to focus on is what? Unfading beauty. Botox. <laughs> is that unfading beauty? It fades really fast, doesn't it? And it kind of looks out of place. <laughs> Makes your face look out of sync somehow, <laughs> right? But there's a beauty that doesn't fade. What is that? A gentle and quiet spirit. This was the legacy that Sarah was able to leave behind for generations to follow. What, how was this manifested, this gentle and quiet spirit? Bible says she was submissive to her own husband. She was doing what is right, and she did not give way to fear. Let us follow the example then of Sarah. This is why I'm sure Abraham missed Sarah so very much. In fact, when she died, what does the Bible say about Abraham? Let's read Genesis 23, 1 to 2. When Sarah was 127 years old, she died at Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. There Abraham mourned and wept for her. You see, Abraham loved her very much. And so when she passed, she mourned and she wept for her. You see, there's nothing wrong with weeping when somebody that we love dies. Because I've heard from a minister once of the INC that if you attend the funeral, you're not supposed to weep. It's a sign of a lack of faith. However, when we read the Holy Scriptures, the people of God weep all of the time. It's okay to weep. As a matter of fact, who is a good example of one who wept because someone has passed. Let's read the book of John 11, 32, 35, when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been there, my brother would not have died. Who was that brother? Lazarus, right? When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. Who is a good example of one who wept? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So is it okay to weep? Yes. Is it okay to mourn and to grieve those who have passed? Yes. However, when we grieve, when we mourn, what does the Bible teach us we must not do? Let's read the book of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died 
so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. When someone we love has passed, yes, we should grieve, but our grief should not be like those who have no hope. This is why our grief, although it may be present in our psyche, in our heart, it should not overwhelm us. Why? Because we have hope. What is that hope? In fact, for those who have hope, those who have died, how are they considered as? Thessalonians 4.13, in a different translation of the Bible, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For a Christian, when somebody passes, what is our belief? How do we regard those who have passed on or who have died? They're simply what? Asleep. And because they're asleep, eventually they're going to wake up, right? Because if you're sleeping, one day you must wake up. When will they wake up? Let's read Thessalonians 4, 5, 15 and 17. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. When will those who, uh, who have asleep or who have fallen asleep come out from their slumber? When they hear the trumpet of God. When will that be? When Christ will return. And who are those who will be risen back to life? The dead in Christ. This is why if we are in Christ Jesus, then we have hope. What is the truth about our death? It's not permanent. The day will come when we will be with Christ and be with him forevermore. Why does Apostle Paul share us? Share with us today this biblical truth. Let's read Thessalonians 4, verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Yes, Abraham wept. Abraham mourned. But he believed he will see his beautiful Sarah once again. Why? Because Abraham saw the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he rejoiced. He knows about the day when Christ would defeat death. This is why, although he mourned, although he wept, he was with hope, not without hope. And so after he mourned and wept, what did Abraham do because of his deep love for Sarah? Let's read uh, Genesis 23, 3 down to 6. Then leaving her body, he said to the Hittite elders, Here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Listen, my lord, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and bury her there. No one here will refuse to help you in this way. And so after he wept and mourned, what did Abraham decide to do because of her deep love for Sarah? She wanted, he wanted to give her a proper burial and this is what we also do right with the people that we 
love. We want to give them a proper burial. And so what did Abraham do? He went to the Hittite elders, the authorities of the Hittite nation. He went to them, and what did he ask for? He said, sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. You notice what the Hittite elder said to Abraham? What was her response? I really like this response. The, Hittite replied, the Hittites replied to Abraham, listen, my Lord, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and bury her there. In other words, these Hittite authority figures, they wanted to give Abraham whatever he wanted free of charge, right? Why? Because they recognized Abraham as an honored prince. In actuality, when we look at the Hebrew meaning of that term, honored prince, what does it mean? Next slide. A prince with God. In other words, these Hittite elders, they saw the presence of God in the life of Abraham. You see, when we live a life with God's presence in us, even the people around us will show favor for each one of us. Don't you want to live a life like that? For me, that's one of the legacies of Abraham. Wherever he went, he created friends, not enemies. See, that's the way we ought to live. That's what God taught Abraham personally. This is what we need to put into action. We need to do our best to live our life, exuding the presence of our almighty God. And so how do we develop that kind of life? Now, what was the secret of Abraham? We studied his life for, some, for quite some time now. And there was one thing we noticed about Abraham. The book of Proverbs 3, 1 to 4. My child, never forget the things I have taught you. Store my commands in your heart. If you do this, you will live many years and your life will be satisfying. Never let loyalty and kindness leave you. Tie them around your neck as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. Then you will find favor with both God and people, and you will earn a good reputation. Abraham, wherever he went, he had a good reputation among the people. That's what we want too. What was the secret of Abraham? He followed the commands of God. And two particular commands of God kind of stand out here. What are they? Number one, loyalty. Number two, kindness. I don't know if you sense that about Abraham. Did you sense that? I mean, we know he is the man who is the friend of God, the man who walked by faith. But he's also, he was also known for his loyalty and kindness. Look at how he dealt with Lot. Right? His loyalty showed when he went all the way to rescue him when he was in prison in war. Right? He showed his kindness when he told Lot, okay, choose what you want. Whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite. Right? He was kind. He was loyal. With Abimelech, he was kind. He was loyal. He was like that wherever he went. And so he earned a good reputation. What else must we do to earn a good reputation? Let's read the book of Romans 1 and 3. Everyone must obey state authorities. Did you get that? It's a command of God. You don't hide from state authorities. You submit yourself to state authorities because no authority exists without God's permission. 
and the existing authorities have been put there by God. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you not like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The Hittite elders, they wanted to honor Abraham. Why? Because he did what was right. We should do the same thing. This is why even during our time, even in our present situation, we need to do our best to do what is right. We need to submit to the laws of the land. Isn't, isn't this what we are currently practicing as well? Even in the practice of our religion, we do not disregard the laws of the land, but we put into practice what God has said. We must obey even the state authority so long as it does not go against the will of our almighty God. We need to do the same thing. And so the elders wanted to give Abraham a piece of land, but what did Abraham do? Let's read Genesis 23, 7 to 9. Then Abraham bowed low before the Hittites and said, Since you are willing to help me in this way, be so kind as to ask Ephron, son of Zohar, to let me buy his cave at Machpelah, down at the end of his field. I will pay the full price in the presence of witnesses, so I will have a permanent burial place for my family. And so what does Abraham request from the Hittite elders? To help him purchase a cave. A cave at Machpelah in Hebron. So he already has a spot in mind. Who owns this cave? Someone by the name of Ephron. What does Abraham want to do? He wants to pay the full price. He doesn't know what that price is yet. But he wants to pay the full price. Whatever that price may be, I'm going to pay for it. Guess who was listening in the background? Ephron. <laughs> Ephron was there. Oh, he's, here's his chance. He knows Abraham was a wealthy man. He has all this field. He has a cave that Abraham is interested in. And he knows that he needs to buy right away because after all, Sarah has been dead for I don't know how long. So there's an urgent need, right? And so here's Ephron listening in. And so what does he do? Genesis 23, 10 to 16. Ephron was sitting there among the others and he answered Abraham as the others listened, speaking publicly before all the Hittite elders of the town. No, my Lord, he said to Abraham, please listen to me. I will give you the field and the cave. Here in the presence of my people, I will give it to you. Go and bury your dead. Let's pause there for a while. Here's Ephron. He's a pretty cunning businessman. He knows Abraham really wants the cave. But guess, guess what? Ephron also wants to sell him the field. Right? So what does he say? I will give you the field and the cave. Why does he say, I will give you the field and the cave? Because he knows Abraham is an honorable man. He's going to buy it. Why? To legalize it. He knows that Abraham will do what is right. And so when he says, I will give you the field and the cave, it was just the game that he was playing. So Abraham again bowed low before the citizens of the land. And he replied to Ephron as everyone listened. No, listen to me. I will buy it from you. Let me pay the full price for the field so I can bury my dead there. 
Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, please listen to me. The land, now he tells him what it's worth. The land is worth 400 pieces of silver. But what is that between friends? Go ahead and bury your dead. So Abraham agreed to Ephron's price and paid the amount he has suggested. 400 pieces of silver weighed according to the market standard. The Hittite elders witnessed the transaction. And so he's Abraham. And he wanted, he made up his mind. He wants to buy this cave. But Ephron suggested get the, land, get the field that goes with it. And he offers a price. 400 pieces of silver. His jaw must have dropped when he heard that asking price. You know why? 400 pieces of silver was way, way, way too much for that plot of land. Consider this. You know how many, how many coins of silver was used to purchase uh, Joseph? You know how many? 20. 20 pieces of silver. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, for how many pieces of silver? 30. Here's Abraham. He's going to buy a piece a lot. 400 pieces of silver. That's way, way, way too much for a piece of land. But Abraham said, yes. Yes. You know how much 400 pieces of silver is? What's the equivalent of that today? It's kind of hard to, to calculate because you have to consider the, the, uh, the weight according to the standard during that time. You have to factor in how much uh, a person makes as a wage. But someone did the calculation, and this is a possible answer. Next slide. $128,000. I mean, back then, $128,000, that was a lot of money, right? How many here lived in the 1940s? If you had $100,000 in the 1940s, you'd be really, really rich, right? This is what we're talking about way back during the time of the patriarchs. $128,000, 400 pieces of silver. That's a lot. But you know what that means, right? Abraham loved Sarah so much and so he said yes he did not even negotiate and back then the custom was you negotiate the price i don't know somebody told me who went to somebody went to israel recently and they were in the market and when you purchase things at the market there in israel if you were not to haggle with the price it would be a dishonor for them right they want you to, to negotiate the price Abraham, he said, I just want to buy it. That's how much he loved Sarah. Well, why was he willing to pay so much? He loved Sarah. Yes. What else? Next slide. Genesis 23, 17 to 20. So Abraham bought the plot of land belonging to Ephron at Machpelah near Mamre. This included the field itself. Better, right? The cave that was in it and all the surrounding trees. It was transferred to Abraham as his permanent possession in the presence of the Hittite elders at the city gate. That's where transaction, transactions usually take place, at the city gate. The authority figures, the Hittite elders, they're there at the city gate. Then Abraham buried his wife Sarah there in Canaan in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, also called Hebron. So the field and the cave were transferred from the Hittites to Abraham for use as a permanent burial place and so he purchased this land thinking 
not only of Sarah, but also his family, because it's supposed to be a permanent burial place for his family. So who would be buried in the cave of Machpelah? Genesis 49, we go all the way to Genesis 49. Then Jacob instructed them, soon I will die, join my ancestors, bury me with my father and grandfather in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. This is the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as a permanent uh, burial site. There Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. And there I buried Leah. So this is Jacob. He was about to die. Where was he at when he was about to die? Jacob. Miles and miles away in Egypt. He's about to die, and he's in Egypt. He makes a request to his sons. When I die, take me into the burial site purchased by Abraham, the cave in the field of Machpelah. Was this request honored? Genesis 50, verse 7. So Joseph went to bury his father, all the king's officials, the senior men of his court, and all the leading men of Egypt went with Joseph. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried his body to Canaan. They went all the way to Canaan and buried it in the cave at Machpelah, east of Mamre, in the field which Abraham had bought from Ephron the Hittite for a burial ground. After Joseph had buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him for the funeral. And so the honor or the request was honored by Joseph. uh, Jacob was buried there at the cave in Machpelah. Do you know what this tells us about the people of God? It tells us about the importance of burial, but also, and this is what I see. I don't know if you agree with me, but this story right here, the death and burial, Sarah, it tells me one thing about the people of God. And it's a legacy that I believe Abraham and Sarah passed on from generation to generation. What is that? Next slide. The importance of family, right? Even at death, they should be what? Together. This is why when we read the Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation, one theme that jumps out at you is the theme regarding the family, right? That it's important to our Almighty God that members of the family should take care of one another. This is why I want to see that cave of Machpelah. How many here want to see that cave of Machpelah? Or where is it? I mean, if we're going to go there, we need to know where it's at. I mean, the Bible gives us a lot of clues, right? Where do you think it's at? Huh? Jerusalem? Well, close to Jerusalem. We saw the map. Where do you think it's at? In Hebron, right? Where is Hebron today? Next slide, please. Right there. Just south of Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem across the Dead Sea. That's where we're going to go. Hebron. Is that okay? You want to go there? How does Hebron look today? Next slide. Right there. Looks like the Philippines. Right? It kind of looks like the Philippines. That's a lot of buildings. So somewhere there is the cave of Machpelah. Where at? Where could it be? Well, we have to look for more clues. And out of all the places Abraham chooses, Why is it Hebron? What is the significance of Hebron? Before we go ahead and fine-tune 
our spot so that we can locate the cave of Machpelah. What, what is the significance of Hebron? Let's go look at the Bible and tell us so that we can see what it tells us about Hebron. Uh, next slide, Genesis 13, verse 8. So Abram, when he was still Abram, remember, he wasn't always Abraham, when he was still Abram. So Abram moved his camp and settled near the sacred trees of memory at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And so when God tells Abraham, Abram to leave Ur and go to the promised land, once he arrives at Canaan, where does he settle at? Hebron. What does he do there? He builds an altar. Why? Because he would settle there. And that's where he will worship our almighty God. In Hebron, in memory, what, does, what also happens there? Genesis 18, 1-2. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the sacred trees of memory. As, as Hebron, as Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the hottest part of the day, he looked up and saw three men standing there. As soon as he saw them, he ran out to meet them, bowing down with his face, touching the ground. What, else, what significant event also happened there in Hebron in memory? The Lord, together with two other angels, appeared to Abraham in that place. That's also the place where Abraham got circumcised, by the way. Okay? It's a significant event. What else happens at Hebron? Let's go jump or fast forward in history. 2 Samuel 2, 1, 3 to 4. After this, David asked the Lord, shall I go and take control of one of the towns of Judah? Yes, the Lord answered. Which one? David asked. What's the answer? Hebron, the Lord said. He also took his men and their families and they settled in the towns around Hebron. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron and anointed David as king of Judah. When David heard that the people of Jabesh and Gilead had buried Saul. So what we read to you there was about what happened after the death of who? Saul. King Saul died, right? And so who was supposed to take over as king? Should be David. You know who took over? Israel as king. It wasn't David. It was who? Ishbosheth, David's, I mean, uh, Saul's son. Son of Saul. He was the one who took over the, the reins of leadership. He became the king of Israel, but David becomes the king of Judah. So even after the death of Saul, the kingdom was divided. There was, the, the king, there was Israel, and there was the remnant kingdom called Judah. And who was chosen king there? David. Where was he anointed king? God says, I want you to choose Hebron. So Hebron is a pretty significant place as far as our legacy of faith is concerned. Seven years later, what happens to Ishbosheth? He was murdered. And the people of Israel went to Hebron and asked if David can rule Israel as well uniting the two kingdoms, and he was anointed king of all Israel, including Judah, there in Hebron. And so it's a significant place. It's so significant, Herod, Herod, during about 2,000 years ago, decides to build this place. Next slide. He builds it over the caves of Machpelah. This place was started by Herod. Why? Because he wanted to have a place where the people of Israel can go 
and memorialize Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs. It's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. 2,000 years ago, this was built by Herod. What happened to this place over the years? Next slide. This uniquely impressive building is the only one that stands intact and still fulfills its original function after thousands of years. Foreign conquerors and invaders use the site for their own purposes, depending on the religious orientation. You see, over the years, you had different groups of people who occupied that place or that building. The Byzantines, who were Christians, they used it as a church. And then came the Muslims. And then the Crusaders took it over. When the Muslims were in control, they turned into a mosque. After the Crusaders, about 700 years ago, the Muslim Mamluks conquered Abran. So it's again in the possession of the Muslims and declared the structure a mosque and forbade entry to Jews who were not allowed past the seventh step on a staircase outside the building. We can actually go to that place. And in that place today, this is what you will find. Next slide. When we go there, it's called the, uh, the Cave of uh, the Patriarchs. The green right there, that's the tomb of Abraham. On the right is the tomb of Isaac. When you go there, that's what it says. But guess what? Do you think the bodies of Abraham and Isaac are inside there? No. It's only a memorial. Because that's not the cave. Where's the cave? It's underneath it. That's only been placed there so that when you look at it, you remember the life of Abraham and Sarah. To gain access to the cave, you have to go where? Next slide. There's a stone canopy that you see right there on the left. And it is above an entrance to the caves. The one on the right, that's how it looks like, the entrance of the caves. When you go through that portal, that hole, it will lead you to the caves. How many here want to go? To that, yeah? I'd love to go, but I don't think I'll fit there. <laughs> There's another problem. No one is allowed to go there. No one, especially Christians. You're not allowed to go there. That's why it's a heavily guarded spot. But uh, back in 1967, the Secretary of Defense for Israel, you know what he did? <laughs> Next slide. He sent a 12-year-old girl <laughs> to go down that hole to describe for him what she sees. Yeah, and she says there's a staircase that leads to a corridor and finds a cave. And so, af I mean, shortly after that, another archaeologist does the same thing. They do it secretly. They do it secretly when no one's looking, when the, sound, when the music is loud, because the, the Jews are allowed in the place to go there to pray and to sing songs. And so when they're singing really loud, it's an opportunity for them to sneak into the hole. That's what they did. And this is what they find. Next slide. There's a staircase on the left. It leads to an entrance to that cave right there. That's a cave. That's an entrance. That's the mouth of the cave. But when you keep going just a little further, you find, next slide, an entrance to another cave. It turns out 
in Machpelah, underneath that structure, that building built by Herod, there are two caves, back to back. And this is how it looks like, a schematic. Next slide. And so that's the stairway that you saw, at least a corridor. And then you see an, a, an entryway to the first cave. And then there's a second inner cave. I'd love to see that cave. This is why I want to bring all of you there and make as loud as a noise that you can make. <laughs> I want you to sing as loud as you can so that Cassessar and I can go into the cave. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah. But there are two caves there. You know, we're not surprised there are two caves. You know why? Because it's the cave of Machpelah. In Hebrew, what does Machpelah actually mean? Next slide. It means double. The Machpelah cave is a double cave. This is why it's not surprising that cave is composed of two caves. One back to back to each other. And so that's kind of nice to know. Um, so when it comes to, we can see very clearly that for the people of God, when people die, what do they do? They bury. They're dead. Which brings up a controversial topic, which is a question a lot of people ask. And this is probably also a question in your minds today. Now, question is, because I was just asked this question not too long ago, just a couple of days ago. And I told them, just go watch the Bible study. Next slide. Should Christians practice cremation? Right? How many here have received or have asked that question at some point in their lifetime? We've all had that question asked, right? Because nowadays, cremation is a lot cheaper. Am I right? A lot cheaper. Why not cremate? So if people ask me, is it okay to cremate? Does the Bible tell us we should not cremate? There's no Bible verse. There's no command of God that says, you shall not cremate. We can't read that in the Holy Scriptures. However, when we answer questions like this, we look at the Bible and look at its message and be informed by what the Bible tells us so that we can make an informed decision to honor Almighty God, right? And so what do you think the answer to that question is? What do you think it is? Should Christians practice cremation? What do you think? Based on what we know so far, based on our studies about Genesis, Yes or no? no? Yeah, you're right. Why? Next slide. Five reasons why we should not practice cremation. What is reason number one? Next slide. Because it goes, it goes against the pattern shown by the people of God. Right? When we look at scriptures, it shows us patterns of what God's people do and what God's people do not do. Next slide. Burial is the pattern for God's people throughout the scriptures. In fact, neither the Old Testament Jews nor the New Testament Christians cremated their dead. Rather, they washed the body, wrapped it in clean clothes with spices and placed it in the ground or in a tomb. So when we look at the pattern of God's people, what did they do with their dead? They buried their dead. So we practice the pattern shown by the people of God. And who most of all is a good example of one who was buried after he died. John 19, 40 to 42, the two men took Jesus's body and placed it where? In the tomb. And so we should follow the example of Christ. What did he do with his body? They buried his body, right? So that's number one. What's reason number two? Next slide, please. We must glorify God in all 
things. Next slide, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If by eating, we do it for the glory of God. If by drinking, we do it for the glory of God. How much more when it comes to what we do with the dead? We should also do that with the glory for the glory of God. So how do you do that? How do you bury the dead for the glory of our almighty God? What's reason number three? Next slide, please. We must show proper respect for the body. Do you know why? Do you know why we should show proper respect for the body? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourselves, but to God. He bought you for a price, so use your bodies for God's glory. Why must we practice burial? Because the body is sacred. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we should show respect for the human body. In fact, who's a good example of one who showed respect for the human body? Genesis 51.3, Joseph threw himself on his father, crying and kissing his face. Then Joseph gave orders to embalm his father's body. It took 40 days. The normal time for embalming. The Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Even the Egyptians has a respect for the, the human body. John, what else? John 19, 40, 42. The two men took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with spices, according to the Jewish custom of preparing a body for burial. And so because of the respect for the human body, we prepare it. We don't burn it. We prepare it. What's reason number four? Next slide, please. Cremation dishonors the body. Did you know that? What's the proof? Let's read the book of Amos, chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord says, The people of Moab have sinned again and again, and for this I will certainly punish them. They dishonored the bones of the king of Edom by burning them to ashes. Apparently, they dug the graves, the grave of this king, got the bones, because they buried the king of Edom, right? What was left was the bones. What did they do with the bones? They burned it to ashes. What do you call that? Cremation. The Bible says they dishonored the bones of the king of Edom by burning them to ashes. We're supposed to honor God and, and glorify God in all that we do. Cremation doesn't seem to fit that ideal. This is why we should not practice cremation. And lastly, number five. Burial expresses hope in the resurrection. Do you know to what the resurrection is likened to by the Apostle Paul? I really love this analogy. Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians 15, 35, 38. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless, what does it say? It dies first. So I want to pause there for a while. Apostle Paul is trying to explain to us the process of resurrection here. To what does he liken it to? Planting a seed. Have you planted a seed before? When you plant a seed, it doesn't become a plant until the seed dies first. The seed breaks apart. When will it break apart? When you first plant it. When you bury the seed. 
which kind of suggests to us when a person dies, what do you do? You bury it, just like you bury a seed, right? When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground, the seed, is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Makes sense, right? What you plant is only a seed. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. And so according to Apostle Paul, when you plant a seed, what comes out is not a seed. It's something totally different. And so resurrection is not reconstruction. Did you get that? God will not get what's left of us, dust, and reassemble those parts to make us, to make us in the resurrection. No, it's not reconstruction. Resurrection is not reconstruction. What is resurrection? It's continuation of our identity by giving us a completely new body. In the same way you can't recognize the plant from the seed, this body is going to be different. It's a new body. Why is it called a new body? 1 Corinthians 15, 42, 44. This is how it will be when the dead are raised to life. When the body is buried, it is mortal. When raised, it will be mortal. It's going to be different, right? When buried, <laughs> what is it? It is ugly and weak. When raised, it will be guapo. Oh, no. It will be what? Beautiful and strong. When buried, it's a physical body. When raised, it will be a spiritual body. There is, of course, a physical body, so there has to be a spiritual body. That's the resurrection. The plant doesn't look like the seed. The spiritual body is way, way greater than the, than the physical body. It's a body, but it's a different kind. What kind of body? A spiritual body. It's not ugly. It's not weak. It is not mortal, but it is Im Im immortal and beautiful and strong. To what is his body likened to? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. Philippians 3, 20, 21. We, however, are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. He will change our weak mortal bodies and make them like his own glorious body, using that power by which he is able to bring all things under his rule. What kind of body are we going to have? Bible says it's not just a spiritual body. It's not just an immortal body. It is also a glorious body, like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why at the resurrection, we will look different, but we will recognize each other. Why? Because at the resurrection, we will have more knowledge, not less knowledge. Why? Because our capacity to know will be greatly enhanced compared to what we have now. Now we know partly. Then we will know fully and will be known as why, in the same way that Christ will know us. This is why when we get to heaven, we will see Sarah and Abraham, the patriarchs, and all those who have passed, who lived according to their faith, those who are in Christ Jesus. All of us will be there and cannot wait for that day 
And so as people of God, we're not afraid of death. Because when you visit the tomb where Christ was laid, it's empty. Because he's in heaven now. In the same way, his tomb is empty. In case we will pass before Christ comes. And we're buried in our own tombs. Eventually that tomb will be empty. Because we will be resurrected. To be with Christ. To have his body. To rule with him in his kingdom. This is our hope. And this is our faith. As people of God in these last days. That is our lesson. Let us all stand and we shall pray together. Almighty and everlasting Father. Thank you so much for giving us insight into our future. We know our physical bodies grow weak and sickly. But we have hope that our bodies will become different. Beautiful, spiritual body. Glorious body that will never decay. So that we can enjoy life everlasting with you and your beloved son. Help us to endure, Father. And as we wait for that day, teach us to live a good life, doing what is right always in your sight, that we can be fully prepared for the second advent of your beloved Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. We thank you for dying for us. We know that you rose to life again, and we will follow your example. Help us to endure until the end, because we know, even if we are to pass, on that awaited day, When that trumpet shall be sounded, the first face that we shall see will be your face. And we shall be with you forevermore. Teach us, please, to endure until the end, following your will and the will of our God. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed your people throughout the world. You will give us strength and courage to always follow your commandments. We ask and beg everything, O Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.